0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Welcome back, everybody, to our 24th episode. Well, it's early August, and the Tokyo Olympics have just wrapped, with the US picking up steam in the home stretch to finish with the lead in gold, silver, and bronze medals. Congrats to all the athletes. But while things are winding down in Japan, they're just starting to heat up in fair RTO land where we lay our scene. FERC recently approved using the ELCC method in PJM to calculate the reliability value of intermittent and limited duration generators. And the groundwork is being laid for mighty power struggles over transmission build out. With that as pretext, we bring you a guest this month who will have a major influence on all of those issues going forward. But first, I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me as always is someone with a flair for the dramatic himself, Glenn Thomas. Glenn, wrestling phenom Gable Steveson won gold by rallying for four points in less than 15 seconds against a three-time world champion, the final two crucial points coming with less than a second left in the match. What's the best last second feat you've ever pulled off? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I don't know. I'll have to think about that. Maybe I'll, I'll get an answer by the end of this podcast. But, <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm shocked you didn't mention the big sports story, Rory, and that is Which the Mets that? just got the Mets just got swept oh! by the Phillies. Um, Commissioner Glick is probably in mourning somewhere. Hopefully he's finished his book about so many ways to lose on the New York Mets because <laughs> um, they found out some new ways this weekend. So uh, yeah, the Phillies are two and a half games in first place and just swept the Mets. So that's pretty exciting stuff stuff but uh yeah i'll have to pull up that youtube video on that wrestling match i wasn't aware of that that sounds, oh, that sounds like a good watch it's pretty cool
0: i've been following uh gable he's a university of minnesota guy and I've just been like wiping the mat with everybody so i wanted to check out how that went and uh, and i also wanted to say for anyone who didn't realize that this was a very philadelphia-centric podcast the fact that we just had the largest sporting event in a four-year cycle that just ended. And Glenn's main focus was on the fact that the Phillies beat the Mets a couple of times in the middle of the regular season. Well, it just goes to show you uh, uh, where our heads are at. Anyway, Glenn, would you like to do the honors of introducing our guest this morning?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really excited about this podcast because uh, joining us uh, today is Commissioner Allison Clements from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Uh, Commissioner Clements came on the commission in December of 2020 and has hit the ground running in so many different ways. Uh, Before she came to FERC, she had stints at um, the Energy Foundation and National Resources Defense Council. She did some work on a sustainable FERC project. She ran her own consulting firm, Good Grid. LLC. Um, she's she's been around this space for a while. Has terrific insights and thoughts, and we're all enjoying reading her materials. But uh, we're so excited that she's joining us here today. Commissioner Clements, welcome to the GT Power Hour.
2: Well, thanks, Glenn and Rory, for having me. It's nice to be here. Um, I'm a big Olympics fan, so I um, I'm I'm sad it's over. I appreciate there was controversy around this one, but. When you have little kids who get excited about it, it's it's hard to not get swept up in the, in the competition.
1: Well, what was your favorite Olympic moment this year, Commissioner? I'm kind of curious about that.
2: Oh, I love um, Jacoby in the breaststroke. That was so
0: cool. Oh, uh, okay. The Olympics are interesting because, you know, every four years, these sports that we don't pay any attention to for the three and three quarters years of the time, they take center stage and things like basketball. Yeah. We won gold medals in that, but that is, is not at all what, uh, what people are focused on. So it's really interesting that, you know, swimming track and field, those kinds of things, uh, people get really excited about them, uh, this, this time, of year, this time of the cycle, I suppose. Anyway, Glenn, we've got a lot to talk about this month, and and, uh, Commissioner, we are so happy uh, to have you with us. You, uh, as you mentioned to us previously, have had your own podcast, so you know how this format works very well. We've got a lot to talk about. We are excited to get into it. Glenn, you want to get us started?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'll be happy to. Um, So let's talk about transmission, something that clearly is uh, near and dear to your heart, Commissioner. Uh, We've noticed you've been writing a lot about it, speaking a lot about it, but Last month, the commission put out um, what really looks to be a kitchen sink a uh on transmission where you're looking at pretty much everything, planning, cost allocation are the two big issues, but there are a host of other areas you're looking at. Can you just talk a little bit, maybe at a high level, what you're hoping to accomplish uh, with that a A-Noper? maybe just your thoughts on transmission in general, because clearly this is something you're honing in on as a priority.
2: Sure. Um, I think it has to be a priority right now when I think about it generally at a high level, we're in a moment in the US where much of the nation's electricity grid, both at the distribution level, which of course is is state jurisdictional, but also at the transmission level, are in need of significant investment. And I think if we're going to achieve a cost-effective future planned grid, we have to define the needs and then go from the lowest cost, do everything we can with, with low cost options up to the highest cost of investment, Of course, all of this is subject to the realities of different jurisdictions across the system. And in my mind, I always start with the lowest cost resource, which is energy efficiency. What can we do there? How can we decrease the actual demand on the system? And how do we monetize that opportunity? Then we move up and we say, okay, what other distributed energy resources are there that might avoid the the need for more expensive system investment? Once we go through that, of course, this is all happening at the same time in many different ways across different jurisdictions. Then we look at the existing transmission and system and say, is this being efficiently run? Can we squeeze more efficiency out of the system? Once we get through all that, then we get to the expensive investment in big new transmission often. And in that case, in my mind, we have to make sure that we're coordinated, that we're forward looking, and that regional and interregional transmission planning and coordination can actually facilitate um, not more than what's needed, but what is actually needed relative to future needs and challenges uh, for the system.
0: It sounds, based on your sort of prioritization there of of energy efficiency first, it it sounds like the Anoper is pretext for, you know, kind of coming back and saying, well, now that we've sort of said what the end game is, let's talk about maybe the low hanging fruit in energy efficiency, or have we already finished the low hanging fruit, the energy efficiency things, the, the, the lower cost stuff that you were talking about as your, as your initial priority?
2: Sure, Rory and I should be clear. Of course, FERC is a technology neutral um, economic regulator. And the, the vision I just described is one of many players. Um, including, you know, utilities, including distribution, uh, distribution system market participants, as well as those market participants and utilities at the transmission system level. When it comes to the commission, I think whether or not there's a shared vision on the end game, I don't know. I think certainly there's a shared identification of the need for reform. And that comes through in many different ways in the uh, advanced notice of proposed rule that we did put out. Of course, you know, although we are technology neutral, it's the commission's job to remove barriers to any type of resource that can provide uh, value to the system, to make it more reliable, um, to make it more resilient, to to make it serve customers' needs more cost-effectively. And and that's how I'm thinking about it.
1: You've called transmission the bottleneck that is stifling competition and you recently wrote a separate concurrence on the commission's recent rejection of PJM's competitive planning proposal to address end-of-life uh, infrastructure replacements. But give us a sense uh on the planning process. I mean we might mention PJM but this could be planning in general, you know, throughout any RTOs. What do you see as the biggest challenges associated with the planning process right now and where do you see the gaps that can be either addressed through this A or through other means?
2: And of course, I can't talk about the specifics of the, the proceeding you mentioned, which is still in a potential um, rehearing period. But I did write in the, that no, Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, we're ta- we've been talking about a concurrence with Chairman Glick that provides our shared perspective on the need for reform, not just of planning, but also the interconnection policy more generally. And, you know, at a very high level, I think the way we have planned the transmission system historically does not match the challenges the system faces today. And that is true because there is an increasing challenge related to extreme weather events, testing our system. There are There's a changing resource mix um, due to lots of drivers that is challenging our system in new ways. Uh, and, and those are the things that, that we need to figure out.
0: Let, let, me, let me ask you this, Commissioner, whose interests should take precedence there? The mitigating of local level impacts or mm-hmm. maximizing of societal level benefits?
2: I think, I think that's yes and Rory um, okay <laughs> the, the, the Federal Power act is is happily alive and well uh, and provides for concurrent jurisdiction which really means a role for both the states and the federal government related to uh, the, the planning for system needs. and so there's not one straightforward answer to that question um, in some cases regionally planned lines will bring benefits to, to in the form of customer savings. For localities and customers who couldn't eke out those benefits, who, who couldn't eke out those savings, perhaps if they were only taking on the challenge within their own um, balancing uh, area. Um, and so, uh, we succeed building out this system cost effectively in this vision I've put forward if we collectively accept the nuance of that, you know, reality of the the, the reality that that sometimes you can get the most savings for for individuals for end-use customers by working together at the regional level. And so I I think what the planning framework needs to do is provide the opportunities for the regional lines to be built when they do, in fact, save customers money over going at it uh, one at a time around the region.
0: So one thing that I've noticed in PJM is the more flexibility that you allow or the discretion that you allow to sort of figure it out on a case-by-case basis it also has the potential double-edged impact of also creating more chance and more more opportunity to sort of get bogged down in, mm-hmm. in 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 you know while we have this you know almost paralysis by analysis we've got a thousand different ways we could do this. How do you think through optimizing those competing interests?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Rory. And I think across the country, doesn't matter if you're talking about an RTO or a non-RTO setting, when it comes to regional planning, stakeholders have to want this to succeed, right? We can put in place the rules that um, we think, based on what we see in the record as commissioners and the commissions before mine have done, to provide for the opportunity for cost-effective build-out of the transmission system where it's necessary, but when you have an interest that falls in one area uh, of the set of rules and you, and you dig down in that interest and therefore try to cause paralysis by analysis, or if you're on the side where you see a whole, a whole host of opportunities that really open up a need for a significant amount of, of planning, you're, you, you, can, you can reach an impasse of the, of the kind you want. I mean, I think mm-hmm. um, so, one, I think that stakeholders have to want to, to, to get this done. Second, I think a lot of the questions asked in that proposed advanced rule we put out speaks to scenario planning. It speaks to getting more realistic inputs and sensitivities around what the future might look like, Um, putting guardrails around the known unknowns, if you will. And to that end, I think we will be able to narrow some of um, what what you're expressing concern about.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the the main criticisms of, transmission is is the same thing it 's always been, and it hasn 't necessarily been addressed is that it 's you know big arguably ugly infrastructure that 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 mars the the scenery and this is why often people um, fight it because they feel that it 's providing benefits to other people and and impacting them on a local level is there ever too much you were kind of talking earlier about um, you know, we, we haven't even gotten close to uh, having too much infrastructure or too much transmission. Is there too much transmission? Is there too much infrastructure at some point? Sure, um, you know, it's a really important question.
2: All infrastructure investment, whether it be an interstate gas pipeline, an LNG terminal, a toll road, a new highway, um, a, a a transmission line, have impacts on people that live uh, or or um, Engage wherever that that new infrastructure is developed, and that's why you know you you there are um, a couple of things. One is that's why you only want to build the transmission on a, in that case that you really need. I think there's been great work done in the west on a concept called smart from the start, which you know this is outside of the commission's jurisdiction at this point, but um, it works to engage in you know, tra- citing transmission in places where the disruption may be less. Uh, another thing is to ensure that you do everything that I said before you invest in new transmission. You you, you ensure that if there are alternatives to that development, that you um, that you take advantage of them. Um, and, and certainly in any given case, uh, you're going to have concern about the development of any type of infrastructure. And that's something that as federal regulators, as state regulators and as. Um transmission developers certainly we have to 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 work to 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 find solutions
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, I think you made a really good point there about you know we've if if you've exhausted all other options, um there's not really much of an argument that can be made other than this is what needs to happen, so I, I think that's a really good point. you just sort of touched on. Um, the next question we wanted to get to, which is the cost allocation issues. The approach in PJM since Order 1000 has been, as you mentioned, beneficiary pays for baseline upgrades where everybody potentially benefits and cost-causer pays for generator interconnections, i.e. the the grid was stable before you decided to get involved, so you have to pay for upgrades necessary to get us back to that level of functionality. But in PJM Mm. and elsewhere... Um, we're seeing an effort to reconsider that paradigm. Are we going to move away from that approach? And if so, where do you see it going? Or or do you want it to go? Um, and can you, can you anticipate what the winners and losers of that new approach might be? Um, and have you thought out their concerns? I know it's a lot of questions there, but yeah, <laughs> I feel like they kind of all kind of go together. So maybe if you want to... Your... Yeah.
2: Well, my goodness, Rory, you could have a whole podcast season. (laughs) So, yeah. And of course, like you, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how we are going to address these issues. And I think that comes through uh, to a great deal, not to, to be a broken record, but in the questions that we put forward uh, in, and concurrence that Chairman Glick and I put forward in the, in the advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. My observation is that, It's been the deficiencies in the transmission planning process in in, in implementation, not necessarily in concept, that have forced interconnection processes to become this default transmission planning uh, role. And the interconnection processes across the country were never intended to play that kind of dynamic and more broad role. They were always intended to connect one generator to, to, to the system. And I've used this example before, but in my mind, current interconnection The implementation of current interconnection policy is akin to the last person to buy a house on the block paying to pave the road for everybody on that block, even though all the neighbors are benefiting from that new road. And and in some cases, even the the, the next neighborhood over is benefiting Mm -hmm. from that new road. So that doesn't work. That's an oversimplification, of course, but we really do need to modernize cost allocation and planning in a way that allows a rational, uh, more logical, and cost effective build out of the system.
1: While we're on the notion of paying for these projects, let's, let's talk a little bit about ROIs, returns on investment. And clearly, if there's going to be an extensive build out of the transmission system under the current model, it's going to require pretty significant amounts of capital. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think you've said it's unprecedented. I think you're right about that. And capital tends to flow where it can get the highest returns. Um, but you've said pretty clearly that you don't think the commission's current ROE policy strikes the right balance and recently dissented on two generator compensation decisions because of ROE concerns. Can you talk a little bit about the commission's ROE policy um, and maybe the areas where you think it needs to be tweaked?
2: Sure. Regulated entities, and you would probably share this perspective desire um, certainty, right? Mm -hmm. We can live with a lot of different rules. You tell us what the rules are. We will figure it out. I was a project finance attorney. I, you know, our projects lived and died by changes in the tax credit, and the, the the in federal tax policy, and I understand that. I think that doesn't excuse the need for modernization across the board, across a lot of commission um, policies because they're you know they've been around for a long time. And as, as any commission, you can take on so many things at once. And so one of those things leads us to something that people have been fighting about for a long time now, and that's um, uh, return on investment, return on equity policy at the commission. Um, in my observation, the challenge of transmission development has never been about the availability of private capital. Um, transmission investment, if you can get the transmission built, offers a robust and stable guaranteed rate of return you have to get the transmission built, right? That's where we have these issues around planning and siting and cost allocation. Of course, ultimately customers pay for that initial investment in transmission, right? And so I think the opportunity in the quest to achieve a reliable and modernized transmission system is great for utilities and other transmission developers to work with states, to work with neighboring utilities and to work with the commission among others to enable um, uh, you know, that, that broadening of, of rate base upon which to earn return. But because the customers are ultimately paying the bill, I think we have to work to do both things. We have to protect customers while enabling significant new transmission investment. And so, in my mind, um, what we need to do is look at the methodology, which I have I have suggested in, in concurrences in the past um, by which we determine available uh, return on equity and, and ensure that what we're doing is. It is finding that right balance that then can be durable and can provide that certainty relative to um, expectations by uh, the potential developers of new transmission.
1: Yeah, and I mean, striking that right balance is obviously critical. And I mean, that's ultimately, I guess, the regulator's challenge, right, to, to strike that balance that allows for the investments, you know, at a rate that's that's fair and appropriate for consumers, you know. But the, one of the other things that can obviously help keep a check on prices and cost to consumers is, is competition. And I've noticed mm-hmm. in some of your writings, you, 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 have some warm feelings. It sounds like to yeah. the role that, that competitive transmission can, can play in this. Do you want to talk about that for a minute and your thoughts on competitive transmission sure. and how that works into to this big plan?
2: Sure. I do have warm feelings about competition. Uh, I believe competition works. I think on the, on, on the, um, System side, you know, the RTOs have demonstrated cost savings over decades uh, of of significant mag- magnitude, and that's a great example of competition working. When it comes to transmission, it's tricky. Um, it's it's the the part of the system that has uh, been more locked in relative to its its monopoly state, and um, certainly, you know, when when the opportunities arise to to increase competition in that area, I'm open to it. I don't know. I don't kind of have an end vision in mind on that front, but certainly the the ability to temper new transmission development with 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 competition in terms of prices is is an, is an important opportunity.
0: Okay, FERC and NARUC, the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, established in June via FERC order. A first of its kind joint federal-state task force on transmission to quote identify and realize the benefits that transmission can provide while ensuring that the costs are allocated efficiently and fairly, according to the commission's public announcement on on the uh, on the order. If you could close your eyes and have exactly what you want out of this task force, what does that look like? And and let as a corollary to that, let's say a state looks at this task force and worries it will be asked to subsidize other states more aggressive policy desires. Why is that fear unfounded?
2: I'll save the second part of the question and answer that more broadly to the okay. first part. I'm uh, because it is a broader question than just the task force. but for the sure. first part, I'm really excited about this this task force. It is a great idea. We, you know, I think, the commission hasn't used this convening and um, collaboration authority. It has um, as much as it could historically. These are really hard, sticky issues. You mentioned a couple of the issues around transmission. We've talked about several um, already today. And this is a chance to have a conversation which when we're not in an adverse proceeding, when stakeholders are not in an adverse proceeding, right? Um, There's no particular state policy on the table in this task force. There's no particular customer protection issue, although those concepts will both loom large, certainly in a good way, uh, over the effort. So in my mind, this is a really technical, naughty set of issues. You and I, both of you guys and I think about them all day. Um, A lot of state regulators don't get to, or
1: don't wish to, uh,
2: (laughs) perhaps is a nicer way to say, or a more honest way to say it. Um, And and you just learn so much by talking to each other. so in my mind, yes, you, you have the reality of states with different policy priorities. You have the reality of uh, consumer interests who have different perspective on what the right amount of transmission to ultimately be built out. Do you have really hard and 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 um, important siting issues as well? So so relative to the the um, the the joint um, task force, I, I kind of see nothing but upside. I just, I just think all around, we'll get to put some issues on the table. There's no requirement that we solve any particular one in any particular way. I know that I'm really interested um, and I think all of my fellow commissioners are, are interested in, in participating and are happy that the chairman has designed it um, such that we can. On the, uh, on the question of um, should a state be weary if the state is weary, that's what they should say first thing at, at, the, at, the, at these meetings. We want to understand where those um, concerns lie. And, you know, I won't keep my rose-colored glasses on for too long. There are some times where there are winners and losers. That happens in the marketplace. That's a reality. But really getting down to what are the specific concerns, you know, it's a pretty monolithic statement we all use, I do it as well, that state policies need to be respected But every state is different. Every policy is different. Every priority is different. And there may be opportunities for common ground um, to get through at least some good portion of those concerns through a process where we're not actually um, uh, reviewing a proceeding where everyone's effectively laid down their their litigation positions uh, for the commission to consider.
1: Yeah, and I think from the state commission side, I think Commissioner, or excuse me, Nayrou, President Shalander did a great job getting you know, a really terrific group of state regulators to to sit around that round table with you. So uh, I think it's going to be a fascinating discussion, and I look look forward to sitting in the audience and watching it hopefully soon. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah,
2: I, I hope it is soon, I, I, and I think it will be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's maybe transition a little the public, uh, the office of public participation, which is something at FERC that you have. Um, put a lot of effort into, and, and it clearly is something that, that you feel strongly about. Um, the FERC, uh, the idea of a FERC Office of Public Participation has been around for a while, I think since 1978, but it really hasn't seen much action to, until this year. Um, and, and you provided a lot of action. You hosted a post, a bunch of public hearings to comment. Um, can you give us an update on where things stand with that office? And what do you hope it will add to the FERC process um, going forward?
2: Sure. Well, thanks guys for asking about this. This has been such a great experience to to, to come into the commission and have the opportunity to lead a public input process to say, okay, Congress told us in the late seventies to set up this office. Um, We're we're now being told again to do it. What what does a point of access at the commission look like to you? What do you need help on? And I think it's been um, encouraging for both concerned individuals and communities that are implicated by the commission's decisions. But I also think over time for regulated entities, many of whom recognize that there is benefit in providing an access point for stakeholders at the commissions as an entree to this bizarre technical legal world we live in. And I think creation of this office and the implementation of its mission as, as told to us by Congress will lead to more robust records on which the commission can vote. And and that's really the goal. This, if you have more informed records with more voices on that record, you can get better, more durable decision-making. And in some cases, you know, will will these more more, uh, varied voices on the record make our deliberations more difficult? Yes, in some cases it will. And in some cases, decisions might be more straightforward. It might fill in gaps. Um, But, um, you know, I don't I I don't envision kind of defining success by uh, tallying which decisions go one way or the other on any issue within the commission's jurisdiction. I just envision a better process where more stakeholder voices are heard on the record and they're available to us for consideration. And um, that is that will make what we do um, more effective.
0: Well, let, let me ask this sort of uh, it, because uh, it, sort of going back to the topic we had talked about earlier, you know, when you kind of open up the process and, and, um, and uh, get more involvement, it can, it can make it less streamlined. What do you foresee as the office's biggest challenges that it will have to overcome?
2: I mean, I think getting it set up was a really big challenge, certainly one of the big challenges. And, and so we're not done there, but we're certainly in a good position. We we sent a report back to Congress on the plan to establish this, this office, which is intended to grow over the next three years. And, and I think that's wise in terms of you know doing anything new. Um, I think another real challenge will be developing a rulemaking process to consider the intervener funding opportunity that the, that the statute explores. Um, what type of program and intervener funding uh, how, how, the, how, how an intervener funding program might look um, that would be associated with the office will certainly be a significant undertaking and um, something that we are just are just starting to to turn to.
1: All right uh, well that's 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 fascinating. We wish you the best of luck with that and look forward to the outcomes of uh, having the office set up and uh, seeing what it looks like. But if we could sh- transition a little to, to a different topic and that's on the topic of RTOs and ISOs in general. And there, there's been some conversations, there's been a lot of conversations with folks encouraging areas that are not in RTOs to form RTOs, to create RTOs. And there's other sort of streams where folks are in RTOs and questioning the value of them um, and the, the governance of them and what have you. And maybe at a high level, just curious your thoughts on RTOs. Do you you know, you mentioned as it relates to transmission, how you believe in competition. Please, please talk about how that maybe extends the value of RTOs in general. And do you believe that RTOs offer the maximum value available to consumers? And if not, you know, where do you see, I'm talking big picture now, the the biggest areas that are need for, for, for reform?
2: I, I do believe in the value of RTOs, and I think that they have proven their value in customer savings over and over, over the last few decades. Um, I had to look this up for the, the um, House Energy and Commerce hearing a couple of weeks ago, but MISO and PJM have both measured their annual benefits to customers, and of course, their definition of benefits, very little, but um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 to $4 billion in annual savings for, for customers. Uh, mm-hmm. Per region, and that's amazing, right? Studies about potential RTOs in the West and the Southeast predict savings of uh, on similar orders of magnitude. So, you know, to me, the answer about whether RTOs have been successful to date is, is quite clear. Yes, <laughs> they have. Um, they have saved customers money. Uh, multi-state RTOs are also demonstrating, and this is something that I've just we've all been observing in the last six months to a year, even that the multi-state RTOs are increasingly demonstrating really critical reliability and resilience benefits in the face of of this broadening set of extreme weather conditions that the grid is facing. Um, You know that this was especially true in in, um, the central U.S. and in Texas this year in Mm -hmm. the dichotomy where in the central U.S. because of the the interregional nature of the the, excuse me, the regional nature of the system, neighboring regions were able to share power uh, and 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 that broad region over which the power was shared helped keep the lights on in parts of the country. Well, unfortunately, there wasn't that ability to share um, in, in, in Texas that this, this value of RTOs related to reliability also came through earlier in the polar vortex situations in the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast, I think both in 2019 and 2014. But in any case, you know, looking back, I would say job well done. Um, what what I think is happening today is, again, it's it's about the nuance of where these entities sit today in this moment in the energy sector and also in the energy transition. And all entities, whether they be corporations, um, nonprofits, government, you know, agencies, need to evolve. They need to change. And the governance rules that RTOs were born with, that were developed, you know, two decades ago in some cases. Are, are not necessarily um, fully evolved to, to the set of participants and the issues that the RTOs have to govern today. Um, things just have changed. And so in my mind, whether you're in an RTO or a non-RTO um, region of the country, there's this need for evolution. And, and those types of needs, unfortunately, don't come you know, slowly and gradually over time. There's, we've been hit with a big wave um, and, and, and we see more coming. So uh, yes, there, there's room for improvement in the ways. But absolutely, uh, in the way that that the RTOs operate and are structured today. Um, in my mind, that's not a reason to throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you were will uh, relative to the opportunity that RTO participation presents.
1: Yeah, and that's an excellent point that I, I think a lot of folks don't necessarily always appreciate. I mean. PJM has been in existence for almost, you know, 95 years, and it's evolved tremendously over that time, right? I mean, PJM started as a power pool between two or three utilities in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. I mean, L&P didn't exist in PJM for the first 70 years of PJM's existence, um capacity markets didn't exist for that you know uh, until probably about the same amount of time so the idea that you know rtos evolve i think is 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 appropriate but a lot of folks tend to just say you know point to one or two discrete things that maybe aren't exactly where they need to be and and try to cast dispersions at the whole models of, of failure and i i think as you point out that's a mistake cuz these these entities deliver a tremendous amount of values, but they do need to evolve. And I feel like, historically speaking, they've done a pretty good job evolving at the time, uh, you know, over time. So, I think that's a really excellent point you make there.
2: I've been a I've been a vocal critic in the places where I think there is a need for change. Um, and and again, this is that. When you have it, it doesn't boil down to neat one pagers on good, bad, or otherwise. It's a broader set of complex issues that go into those kinds of determinations.
1: Yeah, well, and, and these are billion dollar markets, right? I mean, I mean, PGM, I think last year was a $35 billion market. I mean, these are very complex and very large markets. And um, when you tend to look at them in discrete areas, um, it's it's sometimes challenging to appreciate the overall picture, uh, so I'm glad you had the opportunity to get that out in the congressional hearing. That's that's good stuff.
0: Burke's policy on state voluntary agreements, issued in June, provoked an interesting concurrence from Commissioner, your fellow Commissioner Christie, who said, "quote, importantly." The states which chose to participate in RTO ISO markets during the restructuring era shared a general consensus that the purpose of RTOs ISOs was to plan the regional transmission necessary to promote reliability at the least cost to consumers and to operate energy and capacity markets to provide consumers with least cost power on a non discriminatory basis, i.e., without regard to the source of the electrons sometimes called economic dispatch. Federal regulation reflected this consensus about the purpose of RTOs, ISOs. That consensus no longer exists at either the state or federal levels. Commissioner Clements, do you agree with Commissioner Christie's assessment? And if so, how does that shape your vision for the RTOs you regulate? You
2: know, I, um... I really enjoy working with Commissioner Christie. I think he brings a great perspective as a seasoned state regulator uh, to inform our, our considerations, and I, and I appreciate that perspective. I think we're an industry, we are in an industry uh, that for almost 100 years remained pretty stagnant, right? And the last decade or so has really tested the parameters of how all these things operate and what considerations have to be taken into account to effectuate what is the commission's statutory obligation, which is to assure affordable, uh, reliable delivery of electricity, uh, among other things. So this new energy transition is just speeding up a lot of things. And we have new questions before us. Which factors matter in this case? Which issues have we not addressed to ensure this point? But over time, I guess over the maybe seven or eight years, the courts are starting to help provide these, these, these lanes of clarity. We're starting to get our heads around some of um, the, the changes and evolutions and, and, and fast-paced needs that, that we're facing in the industry. Um, and that increasing clarity and, and the evolution I just mentioned applies equally to RTO and non-RTO regions. So in my mind, um, as I said earlier in the conversation, the, the concurrent jurisdiction between the feds and the states is alive and well. And the only way to protect customers is to ensure that utilities in whatever regulatory structure they sit are looking down the road, are looking around the bend in terms of the kind of system that they need to reliably and affordably serve their customers. And of course, the circumstances facing them have changed and they're changing, they continue to change uh, at at an increasingly rapid clip. And so taking those situations and, and those changes into account is critical to keep doing what these entities are, have been doing for so long. And so of course that requires change.
0: Yeah, yeah. let me ask a quick follow-up to that. We, we talked earlier yeah. about the the nerc Nehru Joint Task Force that um, just is getting underway. Is its existence at all an implicit acknowledgement of Commissioner Christie's assessment that a consensus no longer exists and that a new one needs to be found?
2: Uh, I think the task force is an explicit acknowledgement that the challenge to build it, not, of what what you just
0: proposed, (laughs) but
2: but that the challenge to building critically needed transmission infrastructure are real and they're significant. And so I I know commissioner Christie and I, as well as our fellow commissioners are eager to get involved in that conversation.
1: And if I could, maybe one last question on, on RTOs. And and I'm I'm really fascinated about, I'm looking forward to your answer on this one, actually. So, um, you know, one of the fascinating things about the American regulatory experience is that we have RTOs that, you know, have different flavors, like several different flowers have bloomed, if you will, as it comes to RTOs. And you have the pleasure of regulating them, them all. I'm curious if there's a particular RTO or ISO structure you know, that you look at in the country and say, hey, they've really done it a little bit better than the rest? Or is there one model out there that strikes you as um, one that, that looks a little maybe superior to others? Any any thoughts on that as you compare the RTOs to each other?
2: Well, now I'm trying to think of coming up with a good answer. I
1: um,
2: <laughs> You know, I am the third of four children, and so I
1: like
2: <laughs> I like nothing less than naming favorites. Um, knowing Fair that I'm not, I'm not come out on the on the positive end uh, of that analysis, I guess what I think is important in the question you ask is you're pointing out that RTOs don't have to be the same, and in the place we sit right now in this conversation, these regional conversations, um, one easy example that comes to mind on this for me is the reaction that Western stakeholders have had. And sometimes have uh, to commission decisions about capacity markets and resource adequacy issues in the east. And if I may, I think there's often concern expressed by Western stakeholders. I have heard that to form an RTO would be to hand over everything from these resource right. adequacy authorities to their first and second-born children to the federal government. Right. Right.
1: And yeah. That's. A big I mean, anyway,
2: I'm joking. I appreciate there are real concerns <laughs> there. Um, and what I'm always quick to point out is that the restructured states in the East, you know, well after you mentioned PJM forming 90 years ago, when, when states restructured in the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast in the, in the mid nineties and later, they made a policy choice, whether it was explicit uh, as part of the package or implicitly as a result to rely on federally jurisdictional regional markets to satisfy their resource adequacy needs. And that was a decision that happened. And that determination involves the commission in a different way as a regulator of those markets. But if you look at other regions like SPP and MISO, states decided to maintain their authority over resource adequacy. That's a decision they made. And so as a result, some of the controversial or at least more controversial market issues present in these Eastern conversations uh, and, and as they relate to state federal relationships and jurisdiction are not present in the middle of the country. And I think that's a really important distinction. You know, regions have the ability to determine their own futures to some extent in this regard. Um, And and, and so I guess I would say, you know, one thing that I respect and try to embrace about the commission's history is the the respect for regional differences. And this is a place where um, that's a really important respect. And so I think I wouldn't name a favorite RTO. I would suggest they're all matters of their own circumstances and decisions by stakeholders and and, and should be treated as such.
1: Yeah, no, and that's that's helpful insight. I mean, basically what you're saying is, yeah, it's OK that there's different models out there and we're going to work within the model we're given uh, to, to come up with the the, the, the market structure, the, the rules that, that makes that 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 market structure work. So and I think that's uh, that's a helpful answer. So, um, and it's
2: not to say there are not times, there are many when um, rules should apply, you know, should should, should be applied when, when we propose new issues about opening wholesale markets or reforming transmission across the country, how they fall on any given region depends on
1: mm-hmm.
0: the things that you just said.
1: Absolutely. I agree.
0: Well, let me ask a quick follow up to that. You know, kind of what I, I took away from your your comments there are that, you know, particularly for these eastern um, states in, in PJM, you know, this is what you signed up for. When then you hear, so we had uh, President uh, Fear DeLiso from the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities on last month's podcast and talked about, uh several years ago he made a very public threat um to remove new jersey from pjm and basically take the j out of pjm as a, as the federal commissioner what do you take away from that what sort of insight do you glean from a state going to that level of public comment on an issue like that that, that you have some influence over
2: sure i mean t- to be clear i don't mean to suggest you know tough luck this is what you signed up for uh, what I what I meant to suggest is um, the circumstances, the struggle, the challenges, the the need to evolve relative to, um, you know, relevant regulations and, and statutory obligations are different everywhere. Right. Or at least different by region. So um, when uh, a state regulator suggests consternation over an issue in an RTO, I think that's great because it means they're paying attention and they're engaged. And they, and they want to address and engage on, on, on those whatever set of challenges is being faced in, in that region. So that's, I guess, my general reaction to, to um, the kind of uh, situation you describe.
0: Sure, sure. Okay, it's rapid fire time. Fast and furious, but with questions instead of cars. Let's get to know Uh-oh. Commissioner Clement. <laughs> okay, you went through the confirmation process during COVID. What was that like? And have you been to your office yet?
2: Um, it was long. it was really long. <laughs> uh, I have been to my office and I've gotten the chance to finally meet all of my my team in person, most of whom i I met and hired over uh, zoom so so <laughs> i I'm, I'm looking forward to wow. to get to getting through
1: so <laughs> how long did you work as a team before you got to meet them in person? I'm kind of curious about that.
2: I knew some of my team members, so i i um I started December. Everyone was on board by, let's say, or by January. And I met the last of my colleagues, I think, May. I think in May.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Okay, you grew up in Ohio, but attended the University of Michigan. I hear that's grounds for charges of high treason in Ohio. (laughs) Have you been able to go home? I was going to say, have you been able to go home since then?
2: It, that takes longer than rapid to explain, but <laughs> my, my mother was actually a, a tenured faculty member as a, as a county extension agent for Ohio State. My sister went to Ohio State, but my oh, dad got boy. transferred to Michigan uh, as I was going to college, so, and I was born in Windsor, Ontario, which is across the river from Detroit, so I, I the first, the first love for me were the Michigan Wolverines.
1: Oh,
0: wow, okay, all right, boy. Learn something new every day. Okay, put the answer (laughs) to this on a bumper sticker. How does, can, or will FERC impact climate change?
2: I think I'd switch it and say climate change impacts
1: FERC. (laughs) Mm. Ah, okay. okay, okay.
0: It's surely a surprise to no one that what makes the world go round far more often in governmental and regulatory circles are the spontaneous. Hallway conversations, rather than the formalities of official meetings and hearings, for better or worse, your continued high demand on the energy conference circuit seems to have made such chance or calculated meetings with you hard to come by. Do you mm-hmm. look forward to getting out there for informal check-ins with stakeholders?
2: Oh, so much! I had I was I was having real FOMO uh, last month when everybody had head out to Denver for the The Nehru conference, and I really do look forward to getting back to that. I think, especially as a new commissioner, you know, one of the surprising things is relationships do matter. Pe- people want to understand. I want to understand how you really think about the issues, and and I, I have gathered that people want to understand that about me as well. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that.
0: Yeah. What do you enjoy doing when you are not regulating billions of dollars of energy infrastructure? <laughs> Or
2: forcing my daughters to brush their hair, or, <laughs> uh, which takes up about 45 minutes of every three hour. You know, I'm, I'm, a, um, I'm a huge live music fan, so that's been a bummer during COVID for me, mm. um, getting out with my family to listen to music. I, and I'm in a new city, so it's kind of like, you know, I'm a kid in a closed candy store with all these great places to go hear music, but can't, <laughs> none of them are, are officially fully open yet.
1: So who are your favorite bands? Who do you like to go see?
2: Uh, I'm a Wilco fan. Okay. That's, my, that's my starting point. But I, I really love all kinds of music. I love lots of women uh, singer-songwriters. Um, my husband's from Texas, so we we oh. delve into the to the country. But, okay. but uh, I like all kinds of music.
1: Are you going to get to do a pre-open meeting playlist anytime soon? I know, what was it, Christy and, and, and Chatterjee have done that so far. Yeah, so I...
2: I have not yet. This will, this will be me lodging my complaint with Chairman Glick. I don't know how, how Commissioner Christie got to go before me. <laughs> so I'm yet. I'm looking forward to my September meeting.
1: Uh, okay, yeah, because like, the Christie meeting was like two and a half hours delayed, so folks had, to, had a long time to listen to his, his uh, Jimi Hendrix. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't get to hear that,
0: so I was going to ask,
1: Glenn, what did, what did he play? Mostly Hendrix, huh? Interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, but, but, I mean, what would you, but I don't know how you'd label a Commissioner, what did you say, 60s rock, maybe?
2: Well, you know, I can't hear it. I'm not there. Oh, OK. We, to, we no. see the list,
0: but we're not we're not able to hear the the feed. Interesting. Uh, OK. Mm-hmm. So Glenn, we're going to have to dig up uh, the I assume that's on the Internet somewhere. So uh, we. Gotta I don't know.
2: It. Oh, OK. Yeah. All right. I don't
0: know. I mean,
1: because usually the, the video starts when they actually show up. OK. <laughs> I, mean, well, you know, so. I
2: assume Energy Twitter will have your back on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: that's a good uh, point. They, they usually do.
0: Uh, OK. OK um do you have a role model or mentor in the in the energy industry
2: I, I do there's I look to um a lot of women some of whom I've had the chance to work with and engage and some of whom I just like to meet um who are uh charting a course and I think Sue Tierney is a woman who has done that in my sphere um and I've had a chance to, to interact with her a great deal and um work on a, a national academies committee with her and I just she's the perfect combination of well, she's, she's lots of awesome things, but she's smart and she's so generous with her time, um, for, for other people, uh, coming through and, and coming up in the industry. So I, I've learned a great deal from her.
0: So you just mentioned energy Twitter, and uh, and I know you're active on Twitter. And one of the things that I picked up gleaning from your Twitter feed um, is uh, a meme you you put together uh, <laughs> with uh, with uh, uh, Commissioner Chatterjee uh, that uh, if if the eagle eyed uh, uh, film and sci fi buffs uh, amongst your audience would note appeared to be a uh, a scene from the movie lord of the rings i'm i, I or one of the lord of the rings movies I'm, I'm not sure which one uh it actually was can we deduce from that a love of tolkien's books and you know sort of the sci-fi genre overall or simply of the peter jackson movie
2: <laughs> um my husband is the real sci-fi fantasy junkie in our house and he's raising my daughter at least my older daughter to be the same um no i just thought that was a funny meme and uh I understand the, the tradition to be um uh you know the presentation of gifts and, and other gestures to departing commissioners. And unfortunately I've never had the chance to work with Commissioner Chatterjee in person. So um was just trying to to show some respect.
0: Are are, are you are you cooking up some Lembis bread at home to uh to give him later? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, uh, once once covid's over you can come on over.
0: I see. Okay, very nice. Yeah, that's a, that's a deep cut for anyone. Go go Google that. Um all right. Uh what has been the biggest challenge of being a commissioner so far and what has been your biggest surprise? Mm-hmm.
2: My biggest surprise is how much I love it every day. I think even on the hard days. I expected to to find it to be a real honor. Um it's also a really fun job. Uh, uh, my biggest challenge—it's you know starting any job in COVID is hard, as we just kind of talked about—and and this is certainly an interesting one to start from, you know the the extra room in my my home. So uh, that that has been a challenge, but but not one that um, is without solution. Hopefully, sure. coming sooner than later.
0: <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Okay, and finally, what do you hope they say about you when your term has expired and you're leaving? Eight eight eight.
2: I hope they say that I, um, wh- I was a commissioner with integrity, with consistency, and one who helped the sector to pivot, uh, to pivot towards uh, the, the solutions that, that the future requires.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Now, it's time for the section of the show in which we offer unsolicited advice to people whom we think need it. You have two minutes, Commissioner, to level one-on-one with anyone, anywhere on anything you think he or she needs to hear. Who are you going with and what are you saying?
2: My advice, respectfully, is to the the men of the energy sector. Okay. Uh, I think that you included, many of you, have embraced the need to diversify our industry, um, to elevate and broaden opportunities for women and for people of color. And as a woman in the industry who's been around for a while, I want to say keep trying. We've had success. I feel like we're through a phase, you know, um, and, and and it's it's encouraging. But one woman in a C-suite, one woman on a panel, you know, one woman as a guest on a show, one woman on a commission. These are initial steps, right? They're not the end game. And so I say this not as an uh, um, admonishment, but as a challenge. Uh, find a way to mentor and support women. It may look different than the way that you traditionally, at least, maybe before COVID, at least, um, mentored men. But there are lots of people who want to help you. You can ask me. You can ask your colleagues. Um, there are they'll, they'll know, and I know of women's affinity groups uh, in your part of the industry. They're 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 not uh, certainly by any stretch kind of uh, the same, um, and they'll have ideas and opportunities to support you that's
0: my advice. Yeah, I know. Um, so I'm involved locally with the, uh, our local chapter of the young professionals in energy and, and, uh, and I consider myself still a young professional, at least in, uh, in, in, uh, mind and spirit. And we often work with, uh, win up, which is the, the, well, the local chapter of win up, which is the women's international network of utility professionals. So a quick shout out to anyone who's looking for, uh, a good networking group, and happens to be well, it, it's in Philadelphia, but they're they're all over the place. PJM has a pretty big chapter as well. That is uh, that's a really great group, and we've done some some great stuff with them. So uh, um, thank you for 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 that giving us the opportunity for that plug. Thank uh, you,
2: Rory. Can I just say I haven't heard yet. of WinUp, so I have another one on my list as well. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, they they do some really good work. So yeah, okay, Glenn, what do you have this month? Yeah, and I'm actually going to take a slightly different tact on my advice this month. Uh, and it's a somewhat a somber note. Uh, I just wanted to give a, a shout out to the friends and family of Tom Bean. Uh, Tom Bean passed away. Tom was a 28-year employee of the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission. He was a legislative liaison there. Um, just a terrific guy, terrific human being, did wonderful work in public service, dedicated his whole career to it, um, died way too soon. Um, He's definitely going to be missed by the uh, Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission family in the broader regulatory world. So um, just want to acknowledge that here and uh, wish his family and friends uh, the best as they struggle with his loss. So that's that's what I'm going to use with my two minutes this month. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. Okay, well,
0: it's been a lot that we didn't get to today but we definitely put in a solid session here. Any final
1: thoughts from you, Commissioner Clements?
0: Thank you for having me today. It's been a pleasure to chat with you guys. Glenn, how about you? Anything you would like to... Yeah,
1: thank you, Commissioner Clements. Wonderful conversation. I loved your advice. I loved your insight uh, on the various issues we talked about. And uh, look forward to seeing you at the next NARUC meeting and actually saying hi in person. So hopefully we get that opportunity.
2: Sounds great. Thanks,
0: Glenn.
1: Yeah, thank you. thanks for listening, and uh, thank you for being a part of this,
0: Commissioner, and uh, thanks to our audience for listening, and until next time, as always, be excellent to each other. Hey, thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts, and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's g t p o w e r g r o u p dot com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.